Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Hey, good morning, Thrive. How are you doing this morning? Good. I'm not Pastor Brian. Um, They are on a well-needed, well-deserved vacation right now. Let me move these cables out of the way. Um, So be praying for them that they would just get rest, uh, the rest that they need, that they deserve. Uh, But we're going to continue um, this week into the fourth chapter of uh, our series in Colossians. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, those first few uh, verses. But before we do that, why don't we go ahead and pray together. God, we thank you um, for bringing us here together to learn, uh, to learn more about you uh, through your written word. God, I pray that as we study this passage of Scripture, that you would work in each and every one of our hearts. I pray that you would make clear to us how this applies to not only the life of the church, but to our lives as individuals. So God, we give you this service. Speak through me um, as as we study this passage. Help me get out of the way so that you can have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember that the last time that we were together, last week, um, we looked at chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Brian taught through that, and really well, I think. Uh, there was a lot of ground to cover, right? So he, he, taught, um, he talked about Paul's instructions to very specific groups of people, husbands, wives, you know, slaves and servants, um, and how they were all to interact uh, with each other, even children as well. And so as we move into chapter 4, this closing section, Paul moves from the instructions for specific groups of people that we talked about last week to instructions that are for the Colossian Christians, for the Colossian church more broadly. All right, so he moves from instructions on how to live together as a community of Christ followers to instructions on how to live as Christ followers among people who are not Christ followers. And this is important for us because we're called to live out a kingdom ethic in a world that doesn't hold to the same ethic that we do. We're called to live out a kingdom ethic in our own midst, but we live in a world whose ethic is foreign to us. See, we're saved into Christ, but we're sent out into the world. So we can learn a lot from Paul's closing words and instructions to the Colossians. So if you have your Bible, and I trust that you do, meet me at Colossians 4. We're going to be looking at Colossians 4. verses 2 through 6. Again, that's Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This passage is much shorter than the passage that I taught on a couple weeks ago. Um, Basically, we looked at the whole chapter um, the, whole chap- oh, the whole of chapter 2, because it's all one long train of thought. Now we're just going to focus in a little bit on these few verses. So the first instruction that Paul gives in this section is to continue in prayer. The New Revised Standard Version translates this as, devote yourselves to prayer, and I really like that. Like The idea of this particular word that's translated um, continues steadfastly in the ESV that we just read. Uh, is to hold on to something or to continue in or persevere in something. Right? It's, it's used a couple of other times in the New Testament. It's used in the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, when it's talking about how the early church devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. 
and they, they met together regularly. They devoted themselves to meeting together, to worship. And Paul gives similar commands regarding uh, prayer specifically in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he says, pray without ceasing. It's that same kind of idea. And Romans 12.12 when he says, persevere in prayer, it's that same word. Now I want to make it clear though that Paul isn't talking about um, an intensity of prayer, right? He's not talking about praying all the time in like Garden of Gethsemane level prayers, like when Jesus was just it was a heart-wrenching prayer. That's not what he's talking about here. But what he's telling them to do, and don't get me wrong, those prayers are good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray like that, but that's not specifically what he's talking about here. He's talking a little bit more broadly here. What he's telling the Colossians to do is to never stop praying. So basically, whatever situation of life that they find themselves in, whatever situation you know, life throws at them, the Colossians were supposed to continually pray, even in the midst of all of that. And he says that this continuous prayer is supposed to keep them alert. Right? They're supposed to be wide awake, not drowsy or falling asleep like some of you are this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. They're to be wide awake. He's not talking about literally falling asleep here. Right? He's not talking about the prayers are so long that you lull yourself to sleep. He gives the same command in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. And he says this, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And the same command is used by Peter in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 is talking about keeping alert by living with the understanding that Jesus will return soon, right? That should kind of um, be the lens through which we see the world and the, way, the lens through which we, we act uh, and conduct ourselves throughout the world. And 1 Peter 5, 8 is talking about being disciplined and alert so that, you know, you don't fall prey to the devil who is always continually seeking your destruction as a follower of God. So in this passage then, what are they supposed to keep alert for? That's, a, that's the key question, right? So I don't, think, I don't think Paul's necessarily talking about the return of Christ here. He doesn't seem to be super focused on that in this book. He doesn't bring that up like he does in, in other passages. Um, that's not the focus of the letter. One possibility is that uh, it's keeping aware about the false teaching that he's already mentioned in chapter 2. Right? He talks about how this false teaching has kind of slowly begun to work its way into the heart of the Colossian church. And he says, be alert, be watchful of that, and prayer is going to keep you alert for that. Remember, it hasn't overtaken the church yet, but if they were not careful, it very well could. And then the other possibility is that this is a reference to basically generally the current time in which they were living in, the state of the culture, if you will. And why is that? Because it, an, an alertness, a watchfulness for the state of the culture is going to inform the way that they lived as Christ followers and how they could invite others to follow Christ with them. So they were supposed to, to keep alert in it, or um, a better way to put it, maybe by way of prayer. In other words, prayer is the means by which they keep alert, the way they will keep alert against false teaching and, and the way that they are going to be mindful about the state of the culture that they're living in is through prayer. And he tags on at the end of that, that thanksgiving also accompanies it. So then the question is, how does prayer keep us alert? Right? One of the, one of the most important parts of any successful military campaign is going to be communication. Uh, any successful military operation is going to depend largely on how well soldiers in the field communicate with home base. Imagine a group of soldiers on a rescue mission behind enemy lines, right? All they can see is their immediate surroundings. What they can see maybe, you know, a hundred yards or so in front of them. They rely on the information they receive through radios to successfully carry out that mission, right? Through the radio, they're able to communicate uh, with their base of operations or, or their commanding officer. But more importantly, 
the base is able to communicate to them information that they as soldiers in the field might not see themselves. Now imagine with me if the radio system went haywire, right, and broke down. Or even worse, if the platoon commander decided not to use the radio at all and turn it off completely. And he decided to, to attempt to complete the rescue mission without any assistance, without any communication or help from the base of operations. How successful do you think that operation would be? How successful would you think that mission would be? Probably not that successful. Right? In the same way, we cannot successfully live as Christians without constant prayer, without being in constant communication with God. Right? Because prayer is our line of communication to God. Through prayer, God shows us the world as He sees it. Through prayer, He shows us where we're wandering from His will into following our own desires. Through prayer, He warns us when we begin to believe these untruths about Him. And through prayer, He clears those things up for us. Through prayer, we're able to present our fears, our requests, our gratitude to God. Through prayer, we ask for a greater clarity about who He is and also who we are in Him. Are you beginning to understand a little bit how vital prayer is to our lives as Christians? Christ Himself, let's take Him as an example. Pretty good example, I think. When He walked this earth, He prayed regularly and He prayed often. He needed and He wanted to be in constant communication with His Father. If He wanted to do that, if He needed to do that, then how much more do we need to be constantly in prayer? I mean, do you ever notice what happens when you go through maybe an extended period of time where you're not in prayer? You start to think and act in ways that don't conform to your identity in Christ, that don't conform to Christ at all. You begin to look at things you shouldn't look at, say things you shouldn't say, think thoughts you shouldn't be thinking, or at least dwelling on those thoughts. You begin to worry more or get angry often, which puts a strain on your relationships with your spouse, your relationships with your children, who knows, maybe even your relationship with your pets. I hope I'm not the only one. That was a joke, by the way, everybody. I hope I'm not the only one who can say that at some level or another, being in extended times where I'm not in prayer affects those areas of my life. If we're going to be honest, I think it happens to us one way or another, one degree or another. Why? It's because our main line of communication to God is being ignored. It's being put to the side. It's being put on the back burner. We forget that in our joy, there's someone who celebrates with us. That in our sorrow, there's someone who mourns with us and wants to bring peace and comfort and healing. In our anxiety and anger, there's someone who can bring peace, true and lasting peace. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I know, when I quoted that, some of you started humming the hymn. But I understand, right? So prayer, it, it's sometimes really difficult, especially in our day and age, especially in the business of life, to, to set aside particular times where we just sit and commune with God. Some seasons of life are just so busy that prayer gets pushed further and further down on the daily schedule. And sometimes it's a matter of personality, right? Some of you are just bad at sitting uh, for 10 to 15 minutes doing nothing but talking to God. I know I can be sometimes. There's always something racing into my mind. I'm always trying to get to the next thing. So I get that. I know how hard it can be sometimes. And on top of that, we inadvertently maybe scare ourselves into away from those times of prayer because we have this uh, preconceived notion of what those times of prayer are supposed to look like. And we get discouraged when, oh man, 
I spent like half an hour in prayer. I started dozing off because I was so tired. I was started thinking about, you know, what to feed my kids or when to walk the dog. And then in the midst of that, I fell asleep uh, in the middle of prayer. Man, that is not the way I expected that time of prayer to go. So we scare ourselves and we get discouraged. Like, okay, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to push us further aside so, so, until I can get in a better state of mind, get more focused. And then eventually, though, we keep doing that and we end up not praying at all. And we find ourselves in these ruts where we're not praying for these extended periods of time. We mistakenly think that every prayer session should be life-changing or at least, you know, an hour and a half maybe to be fruitful. But anybody who's in a relationship knows that's not necessarily the case, right? So Hannah and I, Hannah, my wife, we communicate in different ways throughout the day. Obviously, there's the classic talking face-to-face, right? At dinner, you've got the, the hour. Uh, sometimes it stretches to an hour and a half because Judah really likes to, you know, savor every bite of food. Uh, and I'm right there with him. So we extend our dinner times and we get to talk for those, you know, uh, for those couple hours. And that's when we have our deepest conversations, right? So that's when I ask her for advice. That's where, if I need to, vent <laughs> to her about how my day went. That's when she you know, corrects me and convicts me and offers her advice as well. That's when we work out uh, through disagreements. And that's when we tell each other how our days went. So those conversations, those deep conversations are really good and they're really needed. But we also text often throughout the day, especially when I go, you know, into, into the city, into the office for work. So I'll, sh- I'll send her a short text. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I miss you. She'll send back, you know, pictures of, of Judah um, as, as she's uh, taking care of him throughout the day. So we don't always have long, deep conversations to maintain constant communication, right? We don't, we, it doesn't need to be uh, an, an either-or kind of dichotomy. In very many ways, it's a both-and. We have deep, long conversations as well as short texts throughout the day. You see, prayer can take place in extended periods of time, but it can also be as simple as lifting up one sentence to God in the middle of the day. Right? Let's take Jesus. Again, a good example to draw from, I think. When he was asked how to pray, he gave an example, what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm saying it in the King James Version because that's what I grew up memorizing. A lot of these and those, which is beautiful. Not knocking the King James Version. But that model covers a lot of ground. Right? It offers for us an example of how to pray. Literally, Jesus says, when you pray, again, he assumes that you're praying. When you pray, pray like this. Pray in this manner. And it covers a lot of ground. It covers... Uh, praise to God. It covers submission to God's will. It covers confession, repentance. It covers actually presenting your requests for God, right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's just asking, hey, God, just, can you make sure that we've got enough food for the day, right? So it covers a lot of grounds, but Jesus also models for us how to pray in short prayers, Remember what he said on the cross, how he prayed? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's Luke 23, 34. It's only eight words in the original Greek that it was written, but it's one of the most profound prayers that's written in all of Scripture. I had a professor in seminary named Bill Thrasher, and he talked about always being in the mindset always being in an attitude of prayer throughout the day. It's not something that we, you know, walk in and walk out of. All right, so you, when you maintain that mindset and that attitude throughout the day, you're able to have both the long and intense times of prayer where you're setting aside, you know, 30 minutes or so in the day to talk with God, and you're also able to offer up those quick, one per, you know, one-sentence prayers that, Heck, they might not even be a whole complete sentence. It could be as simple as God help. He know, you don't need to elaborate on what you need help with. He's God. He knows what you need help with. Pray often enough in this. Oh, also, 
You don't even need to vocalize your prayers. You can think it. How, how easy is that? That's what prayer without ceasing looks like. When you pray often enough in this way, your mind will begin to default to expressing your thoughts and emotions and your worries, your anxieties, your joys, your sorrows, all those different emotions and experiences that mark human experience, you begin to express all of those things not to yourself, but you begin to default to expressing them to God. That's what prayer without ceasing looks like. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That's what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer. So, to be devoted to prayer is Paul's main command here, right, in this passage. Continue steadfastly in prayer, as it says in the ESV. Now, while the Colossians are devoting themselves to prayer, though, at the same time, Paul says that he'd simultaneously like for them to pray for two things specifically. First, he says that God may open to us a door for the Word. This is really interesting because... um, Paul seems to be, for lack of a better word, a bit passive here, right? Paul says that he'd like for him to pray that God would open a door for the word. Sometimes we read about Paul's, you know, fruitful ministry, all the churches that he planted, all the time that he spent in Philippi and Corinth and all these letters that he wrote and all that's recorded in the book of Acts. And we think, man, Paul must have been on top of things in terms of his logistics. That man was a man who knew how to work a schedule, how to stick to it. And that panned out into multiple churches being started, writing half the New Testament. And we, we often think of that, that picture of Paul. Maybe it was also that he knew the right kind of people to partner with. He knew how to, how to you know, tap into their ministry strengths and ministry potential. Maybe he was really good at reading people and understanding where the gospel could easily be accepted, and he chose to focus in those cities. But what we see here is that God was the one who was directing Paul. I want to take a look at, a quick look at Acts 16 verses 6 through 12. I'm going to just read it real quickly here. And they went through the region of, this is, they is like Paul and his ministry partners. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city a few days. So uh, there's a, there are two maps here that I want to show. Go ahead and throw that first one up. And this is basically where he started. There, there's Lystra on the bottom right here where he started. And he's try, Paul's trying to figure out where to go next. So he goes all around Asia. He's trying to make inroads into Asia there towards the east. Oh, by the way, this is modern-day Turkey. This is where it's at right now. So just, um, yeah, just for some context. So he's trying to get into Asia, but God, for some reason, is preventing him from doing that. And, he's, and we don't know why. He doesn't go into it. So he's meeting, uh, he's going to all these outlying cities, and he ends up in Troas, all the way at the edge of Tur- modern-day Turkey over there. And that's where he gets this vision of a man from Macedonia urging him to come over there and help us. So go ahead and move on to the next map. And so he goes from Troas, that's, again, where modern-day Turkey is there, and he goes to Samothrace, sails across the Mediterranean to Neapolis, and then eventually ends up in Philippi. Complete opposite place from where he was feeling maybe he should go. Right? Paul was not directing his steps. He, maybe he was a good guy with logistics and keeping to a schedule, but God was the one who was directing him. 
So in our passage here in Colossians, Paul gives us insight into his missionary strategy, really. We read about that in Acts, but now we're getting it from Paul himself. Here we're reminded that God is the one who grows his church. We're the tools, not the craftsmen. And we don't save, right? And this, is, this should be a, a relief because we're not responsible for the results, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job. But, but here's, here's the catch, right? We do everything in our power, everything possible to make sure that the lost, those who are unbelievers, get as clear a picture of the gospel as possible, as, as possible uh, as it is for us in our power to make that clear. That's our goal. We want to make sure that the lost get as clear of a picture of pos- as possible of God and His great love for them. So, it's a relief. But it's also an exhortation, a warning, an encouragement, maybe, against pride. See, when a person surrenders his or, or her life to Christ, it's not because of our explanations. It's not because of our great sermon illustrations. It's not because of our testimonies, right? Those may have had a part in preparing their hearts and in softening that ground, but the transformative work is done by the Holy Spirit. But God is the one who opens the doors, and Paul reminds us of this. See, these doors are, are for the declaration of what he calls the mystery of Christ. And, and Paul has talked about this mystery before in um, the first chapter, verses 26 and 27, and then the beginning of chapter 2 as well. And just to, to recap, in case you forgot, that mystery is that the God of the universe who chose the Jews as his people despite their unfaithfulness has adopted Gentiles, non-Jews, into his family. And now, every person has a chance to become a son or daughter of God. Every person, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background, has the opportunity to become co-heirs with Christ. They have the possibility of Christ dwelling in them. So, Paul's first request is that they pray for an open door so that he can explain that mystery. And then his second request is that he will explain that mystery clearly. Remember, he's, he's talked about how for ages, for generations, for centuries, this mystery that God wanted to welcome all people themselves was unclear. It wasn't known to people who were not Jews. They weren't his chosen people. But now it's time. Paul is making that clear. God is, is making that happen, making that a possibility. And so he's concerned about the clarity of his disclosure, of his explanation of that mystery. Right? It's a big thing to grasp. There's a lot of background knowledge that you need to understand. You know, why, why did God choose this people specifically? Was it because of something that they did that they deserved? Himself? Well, no, no, no. God chose them even despite their unfaithfulness. He chose to be faithful to them even in their unfaithfulness to Him. There's a lot of stuff that goes into explaining that, right? And so what Paul's concerned about is that he explains all of those aspects as clearly as possible. That he explains it coherently, that he makes it understandable. Right? He doesn't condone a half-baked attempt to demonstrate or to explain that mystery. He wants to make sure that he's covering all of the bases in their correct order so that it's clear from creation to fall, from fall to the redemption of mankind. And that means making sure his listeners understand how God has redeemed what was broken. But that also means at the very beginning, understanding just how broken the world is when humans try to wrestle control of it from its creator's hands. Right? But it doesn't end there. It also means explaining how Jesus not only puts sinners in right standing before God, but also how he's renewing the brokenness of the world. It's all of those things. That is what Paul is concerned about, explaining clearly. You know, as we live life, as we try to, you know, in, um, in, invite others to follow Christ with us, is that something that concerns you? Is that something that you're focused on, that clarity of explanation? 
I've always been fascinated with the exactness of baking. I like cooking when I get the chance, but I'm more of the I'm more of the cook who's like tastes as you go sort of thing. Like you can give me a recipe, but I might not read it. I'll look at the ingredients and I'll figure, okay, I'll put these in the order that I want in the you know amounts that I want. I might like more salt or paprika um, than than others. So so that's how I cook, right? So that's why I think. For me, at least, baking is not the greatest kind of hobby for me because I don't follow the recipe. And baking, if any of you know, it requires following the recipe to a T, right? You, you add two eggs, not three, not one. You add one cup of flour, not a cup and a half. You use milk, not almond milk. I don't even know what almond milk is, honestly. It requires exactness, right? Especially with your base ingredients like flour, eggs, water, milk, yeast. Let's say, for example, you're trying to bake a loaf of of bread, and you decide to leave out, like a genius that you are, um, leave out one of your key ingredients, right? You would not end up with a loaf of bread. If your measurements are off, even by an ounce, it will affect how the ingredients interact with each other and react to the heat as it's placed in the oven. And not only that, but you need to watch the temperature of the oven, making sure it's set to the right temperature, and you leave it in there for the exact amount of time, for the right amount of time. If you take it out too early, it's going to be undercooked. If you take it out too late, it's going to be dry and brittle and tasteless. You might end up with a loaf of bread that has pockets of raw dough or a loaf of bread that's dry and hard as a rock. Imprecision it's not going to do you any favors in you're trying to produce a loaf of bread, at least not one that's edible. In the same way, a half-baked gospel is no gospel at all. We cannot cut corners with our explanations of the gospel, with our explanations of this mystery of Christ reconciling the world to himself. The fact that Christ suffered and died for this mystery to become known and to become a reality means that this message is worth more than a brief survey or a brief overview. This doesn't mean, hear me out, this doesn't mean that we need to explain every theological nuance in every conversation you have with unbelievers. But it does mean that we explain the gospel in a way that generates more questions in a way that leads to greater clarity before a person either rejects or accepts Christ. In the doors that God opens for us, our desire is that the lost would come to know Christ as Savior, right? And it's a good goal. But until that point, we should welcome questions and maybe even welcome disagreements in an effort to make the mystery of Christ as clear as possible. Moving on, Paul then shifts kind of back to the Colossians, right? He's offered up a a little, hey, as you're devoting yourselves to prayer, don't forget about me, pray for me as well. And then he shifts back to the Colossians specifically and their interactions with those who are not followers of Jesus. Let's read verses 5 through 6 again. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, just as Paul had a mission to to outsiders, Paul had a mission to to Gentiles, those outside of the faith, so do the Colossians, is what he's he's saying here. And And he focuses on two particular aspects of their interactions, their conduct and their speech. The word that he uses there, walk in wisdom, walk is the same word that he used in Uh, In chapter 2, verse 6, when he tells them to walk in Christ. He's talking about the way they live, right? He instructs the, the Colossians to walk in wisdom, to live wisely, to conduct their lives with wisdom. He's not talking about anything, you know, hyper spiritual here where God is directing every aspect of your life from when to wake up in the morning to whether or not you should shower that day or, you know, what meal to eat or how often to eat. It's not talking about anything like super, you know, spiritual like that. But he's speaking really practically here. And this command 
is in relation to the people that he calls outsiders. And he's not talking about someone who's, you know, maybe new to the faith, trying to figure out, you know, what the core, you know, uh, basics of theology of who God is, who am I in him, that sort of thing. That's not what he's talking about. And he's not even talking about someone who might, you know, have some idea of, you know, what these Christians are or what their practices are. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are not a part of their community at all. Not a part of the community faith at all. And he's telling them very practically, again, to live wisely. Now, this could, this could mean a, a whole host of everyday things, right? It's very broad. But he makes this command very specific. He, he narrows it down when he brings up the outsiders. Right? It might be helpful if I explain it in the negative sense. He's telling them not to live in a way that is off-putting to outsiders. In a way that will act as maybe stumbling blocks to their understanding of the mystery, to their understanding of the gospel. So that's what he means. And, and what does he mean then why, when he says making the best use of time? Some of your translations might, be, uh, might say redeeming the time. It's, it, it, we translate it in two different ways in English, but it's the same word. Now, in some contexts, in some passages, this word can carry the, this idea of saving or deliverance or, or liberation. Uh, that's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 3.13 and in Galatians 4.5. And he uses it in, with that idea, that idea of deliverance and liberation. But that's not what he means here. Uh, this same word is actually used in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in circulation at this time. Probably the the version of the Old Testament that Jesus was familiar with, and a lot of the New Testament authors uh, would quote from it. It's used in that version of, of Daniel 2.8. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar accuses the magicians, he's instructed to tell him about the dream that he... First off, so a little backstory. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. And so he gathers these magicians to, and these, you know, um, sorcerers to figure out and interpret the dream for him. But to test them, to make sure that they actually know their stuff and they're actually credible, he says, before, I'm not going to tell you what dream I dreamed. I want you to tell me the dream that I dreamed and then interpret it. So these magicians, as, as is reasonable, they get really nervous. And so they're trying to, to buy time. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this and he recognizes this and he calls them out for it in Daniel 2.8. And the same word that he uses, um, that, that's, that's written by Paul, he's instructed them to tell them the dream he dreamed and interpret it. And he calls them out for trying to stall or take advantage or redeem the little time that they had left before their heads went on the chopping block. It's that same word that is used. And Paul uses the same word that redeem or, or make use of in Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 16 when he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Sound a little similar to our passage here in Colossians? Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There he uses it in the context of making sure that nothing is in the way of their understanding the will of the Lord. Here in Colossians though, he's using it in the context of evangelism. He's talking about the, taking advantage of every opportunity to demonstrate and to explain the gospel. To use a metaphor he's used already, if God opens a door, even slightly, you take that door and you explain the gospel. You explain it well. But hear me, this doesn't mean uh, fabricating or forcing opportunities. You don't force the door open. You wait for God to open it. Our evangelism should be organic, not inorganic. God-ordained, not man-made. God-ordained, not man-made. Again, let's take Paul as an example. We don't always remember it when we read his short letters, right? Some of these letters you can sit and get done with it in like five minutes. But he stayed for extended periods of time in cities where he planted churches, and some of these letters are written to people he's never even met. But those are churches planted by his ministry associates. 
Just read his introductions and conclusions to any of his letters and, and see not only the number of people that he greets, but the kinds of people that he greets as well. Next week, we're going to be looking at the, 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 uh, the closing of this letter. And he lists off these people. And we'll take a look at how he closes the letter. But what we'll see, though, just to give you a brief glimpse into, into next week, is that he developed real relationships. And he developed real partnerships with the people in those places. And those came about because of the doors God opened for him. He didn't force those doors open, right? He listened to the will of God. He listened to the voice of Jesus directing him, and he followed that voice. So Paul is concerned about the way the Colossians speak. And to us, maybe this seems a little bit controlling, right? Like, Paul, how nitpicky can you be? Kind of an OCD kind of thing. Where it's like, oh, now you're telling us, you know, what to say, what not to say. But remember that Paul is always trying to instill a kingdom ethic, the ethic of the kingdom of God in the lives of the Christians that he ministers to, right? He says that their speech should always be gracious. So what does this mean? So there are a few possibilities, right? Is he talking about maybe speaking in a way that's winsome, that's, that's attractive, that's, that's kind of pleasing to other people's ears, right? So that would make sense given his previous instructions on um, given his previous instructions and really how practical they are. So it makes sense that, you know, this instruction is also super practical. Just speak nicely to others. But um, it could also be that uh, he's talking about speech that's marked by a very specific Christian idea of grace, the, the, the idea of grace that's introduced by Christ and is exemplified by him. Maybe it's he's talking about the kind of speech that's fitting for a Christ follower. Right, and that option would also make sense because Paul often takes a, a common idea and superimposes a Christian theology, a Christian idea on top of that. Here it's probably a little bit of both. Right? Their speech should be gracious, grace-filled in both content and manner. They should speak grace and they should speak graciously. And to make this a little clear, Paul uses a, a culinary metaphor. Their words are supposed to be seasoned with salt. Seasoning is, I'm, I'm on a kind of a roll here with cooking and baking. But seasoning is, is a vital part of any, I'm not even going to say good meal, any edible meal. Right? Let's say you go to Morton's Steakhouse in downtown Chicago and you sit down in your seat at the table, and you order a 22-ounce bone-in ribeye. It's my kind of steak. Medium. Imagine with, you know, you, you, know, you wait the 10, maybe 15 minutes, you've gone through the appetizers, and they bring out, you know, the tray with your plate, with your steak on it, and the steak is just gray, because it's not seasoned. No salt at all. No pepper. You expect it to be well-seasoned, given the kind of steakhouse that it is, right? Bursting with flavor in every bite. But instead, you get this unseasoned piece of meat. Unseasoned steak is not appetizing, right? I think we can all agree. Hopefully, we can all agree. But neither is overly seasoned steak, right? Seasoning food takes skill. It takes understanding how much salt will bring out the natural flavors of the meat or the vegetables that you're cooking. In the same way, Christian speech is not only to be acceptable and kind, but also wise. We must know what to say, how much to say, and perhaps even what not to say. That's the kind of speech that Christians should have. But when should we speak like that, you ask? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. You hear that word? Always be gracious. See, most translations translate that particular Greek word as always. And that's probably what you have in all of your different versions. But do you know what that Greek word really means in this particular context? Always. Always. 
It means always. Every word that you speak at every moment of every day should be marked by grace and wisdom. And why is that? Well, Paul tells us. Here he gives his uh, kind of a purpose statement. This is why. So that you may know how to answer each person. You remember the, the maps that we looked at earlier? The man traveled across the Mediterranean Sea. First off, before he even crossed the Mediterranean Sea, he traveled all around Asia trying to find where God was leading him. And then he crossed over the Mediterranean Sea and ended up in Philippi, meeting and discussing the gospel with people at every stop. Do you think he was asked the same questions in every city that he stopped at? Probably not. Do you think he gave the same stock answer to maybe questions that were commonly asked? Again, probably not. See, Paul understood that individual conversations will be different and deserve unique responses, not generic ones. Notice the active role that the believer takes in this command. He or she is not passively waiting for some divine revelation about what words to say or, or just waiting for God to just spill out words out of their mouth when they open it. That's not what he's talking about here. They are the ones who discern how they should respond to each person. They're not waiting passively. They discern how they should respond to each question or objection that's thrown at them. That's how the Colossians should act and speak toward those who are not a part of the community of faith. That's the kind of Christian witness that Paul envisions. See, the change that happens as a result of Christ's life and death and resurrection is a constant theme in all of Paul's letters, particularly in this letter to the Colossians. It's no exception. And we focus a lot on the inward change that the work of Christ brings, right? And we should. That's a good thing, that inward work that Christ does in our lives, right? For many of us, he's broken the chains of, of guilt, anxiety, and depression, and, and purposelessness. And, and that's brought about experiences of true forgiveness, true peace, true joy, true purpose in this life. But sometimes we forget that the point of that inward work is that it's supposed to work its way outward. It's supposed to work its way out. The work of Christ in our hearts changes our actions and our speech towards those who believe what we do as well as those who don't believe as we do. Now sadly, there's been an erosion of Christian witness in the last decade or so, uh, last decade or so. I'm not talking about the natural loss of Christian influence or, or witness as people, you know, move away from biblically informed values or, or disagree with, you know, what we believe theologically. That, I'm not talking about the loss of Christian witness in that respect. That's to be expected. That, I think, is, is fairly natural, right? Jesus told us, uh, we're going to experience tribulation because the world's not going to see or submit to him the way we, we submit to Christ. So that makes sense. What I'm talking about is a self-inflicted erosion of Christian witness. The loss of Christian influence that Christians themselves have brought about. The loss of credibility that we ourselves caused. Let me point out three ways, maybe, in which this has happened. One, the rhetoric on social media. We're going to get really practical here as we close. The rhetoric on social media. Something about social media enables people to throw off all inhibition in the comments section of, of posts. Maybe it's the fact that you don't see the person you're responding to face-to-face. -face. Again, those face-to-face -face conversations. Or maybe it's the ease with which you can delete the comment after. Right, but it's already there. Or maybe the ease with which you can just scroll down to the next post and comment on that. Or move on to another tab in your web browser. Out of sight, out of mind. Maybe it's the fact that after you post that less than savory comment about a church, social, or political issue, 
you can just move on to another task. Forget that it was even there. And yet, your comment is there for all the world to see. Two, the overindulgence in Christian liberties. There are certain things that the Bible withholds judgments on, right? Um, and then there are other things that we face today that there aren't even found in the Bible at all, right? So we have to think theologically. We have to use discernment for that. But it does make clear that there are limits that should not ever be crossed. See, let's put it even more practical, right? Drinking beer or wine, not a sin, not sinful. But alcohol consumption that leads to drunkenness, the Bible is very clear. That's not how a Christian should act. Eating and appreciating good or maybe expensive food, like a Morton Steakhouse ribeye, it's not sinful. But food consumption that leads to gluttony and withholding food from those who need it and are hungry is sinful. Accumulating wealth or material goods is not evil. It's not a sin to be rich or try to want to earn more money. That's not an issue. But Accumulating wealth or material good to flaunt it pridefully is. See, we have certain liberties as Christians, areas in our lives where God gives us freedom to use our God-given and Holy Spirit-directed discernment in our decision-making. But what happens when we take advantage of those so-called Christian liberties? Eventually, we become slaves to our liberties. And the overindulgence in those areas of Christian liberty not only affect us, they affect our witness. What is an outsider to think when, when they see someone who's supposedly a Christian getting plastered on Friday nights? Or what is a non-believer supposed to think when they find out that you know, the person showing off their, their new Porsche is actually a pastor of a, a local church? In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 24, Paul quotes and then counters a common idea circulating among the Corinthian Christians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Basically, what he's saying is this. It's a little bit confusing, but to summarize... He's saying this, in trying to defend your overindulgence in Christian liberty, you say all things are lawful, all things are permitted. But then he counters that with this, but not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up. And he counters that theology even more by saying this, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I think that's fairly clear, so I'm going to leave that there. And three is politics. All right, see ya. Um, this is going to be very touchy, right, for some of you, for some of us, for all of us maybe. Right, political engagement is something that I think Christians can and should be um, involved in. I'm going to make that clear, by, by f and I'll qualify that, by... I think that's something we should be faithfully involved in. I'm not talking about faithful to, you know, one particular person or party or voting in every election left and right. I'm talking about, I'm talking about being uh, involved in a way that's scripturally grounded and theologically informed. Through politics, and this is, this is why I think we can, it should be a, a great opportunity for us to be involved in politics. Through politics, we can show the world the ethics of the kingdom of God in both the policies we support and beyond that, how we engage in politics. How we go about advocating for those policies. But see, what has happened is, is the elevation of the politics of this world, the politics of this nation, over the ethics of the kingdom of God. We've made idols out of our political parties. We've made idols out of our political ideologies, policies, 
and dare I say, maybe even politicians. And in worshiping those idols, we hurl verbal insults at our so-called opponents, burn relational bridges with those with whom we don't see eye to eye, and generally act and speak in ways that would otherwise be considered lunacy if our politics were in their proper place. Hear me out. I'm not talking about one political party. I'm not talking about one political ideology. I'm not talking about one you know, political, uh, politician in particular. I don't care what side of the aisle that you're on. I'm not, that's not the focus here. So before you, you know, start pointing fingers after that description, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's doing this, or this woman's doing that. That fits her description. No, 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 no. Wait for a second and, and examine your own heart and see if maybe you fit that description. While all of that is happening, the whole world is watching us. the erosion of Christian witness in our day and age. What do those three areas have in common? They all center around our conduct and our speech. Worship team, you can come on up. There's a well-known saying that you may be the only Jesus some people will ever see. Now, in this, in this day and age, particularly in our American context, uh, that's not really the case, right? Whatever you think about the statement that America is a Christian nation or, or founded as a Christian nation, there's no denying the, the cultural kind of Christianity that's embedded itself in this, in this country. People will have some sort of interaction with Christianity, the Bible, or Jesus at some point or another. So the statement that you may be the only Jesus some people will ever see is not fully accurate. But hear this. You may be the first glimpse of Jesus a person sees. And that glimpse can either draw them closer to him or drive them further away. So what is... Paul trying to say to the Colossians as he nears the end of his letter to them. What's, what's his point? Remember that, that Paul here is, is writing the letter more generally than he, than he does in other letters. He's not correcting specific heresies. He's not correcting you know, specific actions that, that he's heard about that they're doing. In fact, he's writing to encourage the Colossians to continue growing in the faith just as they already have, to continue in the good start that they've had. These five verses that we just looked at almost summarize everything that he's taught up to this point. If nothing else, they were to remember these things. But the great start that they had was not the end, right? It had a bigger goal. It had a bigger end in mind, and that's to draw more people to Christ. You see, the life of a Christ follower has an inward start, but an outward focus. I'm going to say that again. The life of a Christ follower has an inward start, but an outward focus. And what does this mean for us? That means that, that as Christ changes us inwardly, we act on that change externally. When he forgives, we're able to, to forgive others. When he shows grace to us, we're able to be gracious towards others others. When he tells us the truth of who we are in him, we begin to view others more fully as fellow image bearers of God. The way we live our lives, our actions, our speech, our conduct functions as a witness to who Christ is and what his work has been. The question for you is, will you be a faithful witness to that? Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song that um, 
that really draws our focus on Christ's redeeming work and puts an eternal perspective on things. And that, I hope, has is, is kind of been what you've gotten as we've looked at these five verses. So as we sit in this space, in this time, I encourage you to, to kneel, whether that's physically or just in your heart and your mind, in submission to Christ. Let him do the work that only he can in convicting your hearts. Point out the areas in your life that, that need to be conformed more fully into his heart. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10.